0: Good afternoon uh, ladies and gentlemen I'd like to thank uh, KEGS for giving me this opportunity to give you this keynote talk on uh, mining for net zero and the impossible task. I'd like to go over with you some of the issues that that really make achieving our net zero goals extremely difficult and I would like to say impossible. So the the objectives of the, the the presentation are to raise awareness of the increasing need for minerals and metals in our society especially if we are to achieve net zero goals. The current and existing deposits are depleting at a very fast rate and it's very difficult to find new ones. There is a threat to Canada in particular of the global domination of mineral resources that China, China poses in as much as We don't want to have a single source of supply for a lot of our metals and minerals. Best is a homegrown supply. There's reduced enrollment in the earth sciences, especially in geophysics at universities in Western countries, particularly true in Canada. There's national programs in China and Australia but there's a lack of a national regional program uh, in Canada. There's also the lack complete lack of a holistic minerals plan for Canada at the national level. Take all these together it will mean that Canada will become more and more reliant on metal supplies from other countries and if the pandemic has taught us anything it is that we need to be self-reliant. So the aspirational dream of course in net zero that a lot of countries have signed up to is reducing our uh, carbon emissions from 34 gigatons to zero within the next 30 years. 29 now. Is that possible? Well, as a number of uh, people have been saying, uh, Jonathan Amos of the BBC in May, uh, and uh, Northern Miner article in mid-July, that this is not possible without uh, mining, a lot more mining, much more mining. Ironically, the uh, Canadian government has struck a federal um, net advisory body comprising 14 members, all very highly competent and skilled and knowledgeable but none of them have any experience in mining. And so the net advisory body does not, is not able to give advice to the Canadian government about mining and the need for mining. So if we look at what an average American baby needs Uh, And this is uh, taken today. It's not considering the growth through uh, net zero technologies. And a Canadian baby will not be that much different from an American baby. 450 kilograms of of copper um, and so on. You can see all these different uh, 400 kilograms of of lead, um, 10,000 kilograms of iron ore and so on. all these different metals and minerals in their lifetime. Let's have a look at the periodic table, and here's an example of the periodic table. And highlighted in brown are the elements that went into the first generation cell phone. And the point here is that these metals and minerals don't go on trees, they have to be extracted from the earth. Now, those were extracted when the first generation cell phone came out, but a modern cell phone uses Almost all of the elements in the periodic table, except of course uh, lead and beryllium, Uh, they've been dropped, but you can see that a lot more elements in the periodic table required. And the issue is that a lot of these are not recyclable. And if we color code the periodic table now in terms of recyclability, with those in blue are highly recycled, above 50%, those in red are not recycled, less than 1%, you can see that a lot of these elements that go into modern technologies are not recycled so every time you, you build a new one you have to extract new metals from the ground. Going back to our cell phone now uh, these are all the different metals in the cell phone and the ones in red are not recycled so every time you have a new cell phone you have to have a new tantalum, a new neodymium. Uh, new uh, lithium itium and so on. Um, This has been recognized a number of uh, articles out now by uh, Minerals for Climate Action and the world is rapidly transitioning to low carbon technologies but these will require a large amount of minerals and this has been known for 20 years. In 2002 the United States Nations uh, world Summit stated that mining minerals and metals are important to the economic and social development of many countries. Minerals are essential for modern living and that applies even more so today and even more so for the future. If we look at a wind farm, wind's becoming a huge generator around the world of renewable energy and here's a, a, a simple uh, uh, a single windmill, you can see how much ore is required. You need 4.7 tons of ore to get the copper for a windmill. You need three tons of aluminium ore. You need two tons of rare earth elements. The World Bank estimates a 250% increase in minerals to meet the demands for wind turbines if we're going to achieve the two degree maximum climate scenario goal by 2050. 2DS is it called? And many of these have limited uh, recycling. Possibilities. So we need new mining, new mining projects. Uh, the same with um, um, solar panels. Solar panels use a huge amount of silver, 7% of the global demand currently. The problem with silver is the big producers were Mexico and Peru. A lot of it is now coming uh, from China. China's ramped up silver production hugely over the last 30 years. But the solar panel price crisis hasn't begun yet. And the issue here is what you could call ethical supply that half of the world's solar grade polysilicon comes from uh, China's vast western region, where Uyghurs and other Muslim minority groups have been victimized by policies. According to the US government, they're characterized as crimes against humanity and possible genocide. So modern energy technologies are much more mineral intensive and we take uh, one component of modern energy technologies and that's the lithium ion battery. And for that we need lithium, nickel and cobalt plus a lot of other minerals depending on the composition of the battery. We are moving towards lithium sulfur but lithium sulfur batteries will require even more lithium than lithium ion. The advantage of lithium sulfur is it's two to three times greater energy density We're at the tipping point for adoption of EVs, electric vehicles, and you can see the exponential rise in take-up of EVs globally Uh, and in fact we're going to go through the um, biggest revolution of motoring since Henry Ford's first production line started in in 1913. I find it uh, Ironic that uh, Ford F-150 that is associated with, with quote, manliness, and they're bringing out an electric vehicle. It would be great to see these uh, take up. So what will this extra capacity give us, this renewable energy capacity? Wind and solar will give us another estimated by 2030 an estimated 440 uh, gigawatts. If we add EVs into that, The capacity addition from EVs is 10 times. You can see that EVs will absolutely dwarf solar and wind uh, capacity. It's it's, it's huge, the projections for uh, EVs. The problem is the amount of metals and minerals we need in EVs. Let's take copper as, as an example. A standard internal combustion engine uses on average about 9 kilograms of copper. A hybrid electric vehicle uses 40 kilograms of copper. A battery electric vehicle uses 83 kilograms, almost 10 times as much as a standard uh, car. How many cars and trucks and so are produced on the roads today in the world? There's something like 1.4 billion vehicles, about a billion cars, and 400 million trucks and buses. So let's say a lifetime of 14 years, that gives us 100 million new vehicles each year and that's not bad because we were producing almost 100 million new cars in 2018-2019 and to satisfy that we need about 15 megatons of copper for the the EVs we can recycle at about the 55% rate which is about as efficient as we're going to get and so we need 7 megatons of new copper each and every year just to satisfy the EVs and we have all these other huge amounts of nickel carbon as well as um, lithium manganese and cobalt to add into the mix compared to a conventional car. The net zero goal is that 60 percent of global car sales will be electric by 2030, 60%. So in order to achieve that, that means we need four megatons of new copper by 2030, seven megatons by 2050. And what about the copper needs of renewable energies? Solar is anticipated to go to about two megatons, onshore wind about one megaton, offshore wind about half a megaton. So the total increase in copper needs will be more than two megatons. Assuming we're recycling 55% again, we need one megaton of new copper each and every year for these renewable uh, energy technologies. Um, And so we're going to need seven megatons for cars, and trucks, buses, one megaton more, a total of eight megatons per annum by 2050. Eight megatons of new copper each and every year. How much are we producing right now? Well, we've been ramping up copper considerably. Most of our copper these days comes from these massive uh, porphyry deposits in Chile. And we're producing 16 megatons of copper globally. And so we've got to increase that by 50% by 2050. We've got to increase it by 25% by 2030 if we want to reach the 60% EV goal. And I would say to you that this is impossible for copper alone, never mind the other minerals. Now, why do I say this? And this is because the demand will outstrip supply hugely. And here on the right, you can see an analysis that came from uh, CIU's copper team. And you can see here that by 2035, we're gonna have this huge supply gap. Demand is increasing hugely, but supply is dropping. And that supply gap will seriously throttle the uptake of new technologies needed for adoption of net zero. Well, why is is supply dropping? And that's because over 200 major copper mines currently in operation will reach end of their productive life before 2035. Some of the big copper mines in the world are almost depleted. Lithium is just as bleak. Here we have current production in this black line and these are uh, our estimated needs with various recycling scenarios we are already in 2022 going to have a supply gap we're not going to have enough lithium to meet the needs and as we shift from lithium ion to lithium sulfur um, that's certainly not going to uh, that's going to make things worse there's a lot of lithium around usgs estimate 21 Megatons globally, but it needs to be found and it needs to be mined. Now, the reason that lithium batteries have really taken off is that the cost has plummeted. And here you can see over the last 30 years how uh, lithium-ion batteries have become um, very cheap. The issue is that as lithium becomes scarcer and scarcer, this curve will turn around and will sharply rise. Lithium-ion batteries will become more expensive. Which will drive up the cost of the EV vehicles, which will slow down their adoption. The same for cobalt. Um, the cobalt supply compared to uh, um, cobalt um, uh, need, we're already in the position this year of having a supply gap. Um, one issue with cobalt, and this is true of a number of of, uh, of min- minerals and metals, is the sourcing of them when you have a dominant supplier, In this case uh, the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, has tripled its production of cobalt uh, since 2008. It now produces over two-thirds of the global production. Uh, You can see how it absolutely dwarfs all the other producers of cobalt. Now cobalt is not defined as a conflict mineral uh, but many essential minerals like cobalt are currently geographically restricted to countries that have questionable human rights records so let's look at cobalt Well, like I say it comes from southern DRC not associated with a conflict mineral but still it's a it suffers from child labor corruption crime poverty and uh, its mining uh, practices in order to combat this a number of companies uh, have come together in what they call a fair cobalt alliance so that we're going to have ethical cobalt. Uh, a quick mention about conflict minerals these are the so-called three TGs and here you can see a photograph from uh, western part of the, the DRC showing these people that are being forced uh, to work uh, by these uh, soldiers. Um, the three TGs are coltan, cassiterite and wolframite Uh, coltan is the one that you'll know this is in all your cell phones tantalum and there's a very good chance that the cell phone you have in your hand right now actually comes uh, is a conflict mineral comes from Western DRC so where does uh, the tantalum come from uh, and how has it changed since 1990 the last 30 years and you can see that this brown region is called the Great Lakes region this isn't the Great Lakes region of Canada, it's the Great Lakes region of Africa, Eastern DRC, Burundi and Rwanda. And Rwanda is producing half the world's tantalum, Uh, the Congo is producing another third, and the rest of the world produces less than a third of the world's uh, tantalum. So to combat this, the EU, since the beginning of this year, is requiring supply chain diligence of tantalum to remove Tantalum's financing of conflict, This supply chain diligence could be extended to all minerals and metals. Let's just have ethical minerals like we have ethical diamonds and ethical foods. Some companies are beginning to do this and they've formed what's called the Responsible Minerals Initiative and other organisations of the European Partnership for Responsible Minerals and the Public-Private Alliance for Responsible Minerals Trade. So, as an example, Seagate, the uh, um, uh, disc manufacturer, has got a responsible sourcing of minerals policy that all of their products will uh, come from, be manufactured from responsibly and ethically sourced uh, minerals. Uh, Cobalt is changing its landscape as well. And four major manufacturers, Tesla, BMW, Volkswagen and Ford, are committed to ethical supply of cobalt through the Responsible Minerals Initiative. One thing to remember though is there is a huge carbon cost to produce the metals we need in the Green Revolution. Extraction and processing requires a lot of electricity. And this electricity should be from renewable sources, it's not right now, most of it is not, uh, is produced from uh, fossil fuels. Some companies already addressing this. Uh, Beliden promises to provide copper with a low carbon footprint going into the future. And we should be looking at this at all points in the supply chain. An example of supply risk is niobium. Over 90% of the world's supply comes from one country, it's Brazil, and niobium is absolutely essential it's used in, um, in stainless steel, and we, we find it in jet engines, in rockets, in beams, and girders, particle accelerators, scanners, and so on. And we have a supply risk. When you have so much coming from one place and there's a problem with that country, then the whole world is, is in trouble. This supply risk has been catalogued by the USGS uh, from a US perspective and this shows the supply risk to the US of sourcing of elements on the periodic table where dominantly China is the source and you can see here that um, the US is very concerned that a lot of these elements are sourced purely almost purely from uh, from China one issue with um, the uh, current uh, mineral processing is that we ship Uh, or around the world for processing and here you can see the world shipping lanes and there's a various categories of what they call shipping commodities and the the ore comes under HS 26 and HS 26 is this green color and you can see how all these countries are shipping in Canada it's about half of what we ship is ore in China it's about three-quarters of what is shipped both to and from China and shipping Generates a huge amount of greenhouse gases, over a billion tons a year, and so we have to reduce the this uh, the influence of this shipping. Um, This shows you how large ore is. It's the most shipped uh, of all these various uh, categories, and the the issue is it's the the shipped the most distance. Uh, You can see here on this scale it's shipped 160. uh, um Miles compared to all these others that have, have got very short uh, distances to ship. We cannot ship using uh, power our boats using uh, nitrogen oh uh, sorry hydrogen we can use nuclear um, but it's not cost effective in in the uh, in anything but a roll on roll off ferry. So we need to source locally and Rio Tinto is showing the way they're opening a new Scandium plant in Quebec Uh, now back to our needs our lithium battery needs and this shows the uh, calculated scenarios if we are to achieve the two degree scenario we need eleven times more aluminium, eleven times more cobalt, lead iron, lithium, manganese and nickel if we only achieve double what we're producing now, we're going to be at the 4 degree warming scenario. And the supply race is on, EV manufacturers are beginning to establish supply chains for lithium and lithium batteries and Volkswagen aims to overtake Tesla as a global EV leader by the middle of the decade and is building 6 battery factories across Europe. As just as an aside though EVs may be a little bit of a red-heading on our journey to net zero in that the cost of producing an EV is equivalent to about 200,000 kilometers of driving a, an internal combustion engine and a number of people have published on this there, there are other analyses that say slightly different stories but there's still a consequence of producing the metals and minerals if we don't do this using renewable energies so manufacturing them leaves massive carbon footprint 74 percent more CO2 than conventional cars. So, Solar voltaics will also require huge amounts of new aluminium copper uh, indium iron and so on and you can see here we need to produce three times more than we're producing now in order to satisfy the solar voltaic need. Let's talk about rare earths for a minute. Rare earths are the lanthanides and scandium and itium. And we need these rare earths in almost everything you can think of that's electronic. Computer memory, rechargeable batteries, cell phones and so on and so on. And in catalytic converters, of course. And so we need them in cars and all our electronic goods. Where do rare earths come from? Well, up in the 70s and 80s, the biggest producer in the world was the US. And then that dropped off by 2000. And China became a monopoly supplier of rare earths by 2010. This is now being changed. A number of countries are recognising this as, as a strategic issue. Australia, US and some other countries, not Canada, is beginning to produce uh, rare earths for themselves. China has known reserves of 44 billion tons. Vietnam has known reserves of 22 billion tons. Brazil has a known reserves of 21 billion tons. Canada has known reserves of less than a billion tons. What's that about? Canada and China are about the same physical size and we have a lot of the same geology and the issue is the known reserves. We just don't know. We don't know enough about Canadian geology to know what reserves we have in the Canadian shield. Uh, the neodymium demand for onshore wind currently far exceeds uh, current supply. The total current al- annual production is 7000 tons and if we're going to achieve the 2 degree warming scenario we've got to produce uh, 10 times to 20 times to 30 times more than that for onshore and even more for offshore wind if we don't even to get the 6 degree warming scenario we have to produce much more neodymium. Where does the neodymium come from? Um uh, China was pre- is producing most of it now. And so what is the point of moving to net zero if in doing so we're creating more environmental pollution and human rights abuses? Canada should provide the world with clean rare earths. This has been recognized by Biden's administration and Biden has a $2 trillion infrastructure legislation which is trying to make sure that the US is not reliant on other countries for what they need as critical uh, metals and minerals. One issue of concern is what's called metals companionality. And that means that sometimes we don't mine directly for some metals they come as byproducts when we're mining for something else so the things in blue on this table are the things we mine for and the things in red are the things that are byproducts of mining for the things essentially in blue and for example when you mine for zinc the byproducts are indium germanium and cadmium when you mine for nickel you get cobalt pgm and scandium and so If we stop mining for zinc, suddenly we don't have indium, germanium, and cadmium. And that means we we don't have touch screens, LEDs, fiber optic cables, and so on and so on. And, And so where does our zinc come from? Yeah, well, most of it now is coming from China. And any of these countries could turn the tap off at any time. So our known deposits are depleting and new ones are not being found quickly. We're depleting them at ever-increasing rates. We're not discovering them. Here's a, a schematic of a mineralized zone. But a mineralized zone is huge compared to the ore reserve zone, which is this tiny bullseye in the middle here. And one statistic is that of 3,000 discoveries of mineral showings, only one ever makes it to a mine. And the issue is the rate of coming to a mine has hugely slowed down. In the 1950s, of the major uh, mineral showings, 50% of them became mines within 15 years. By the 2000s, only ten, less than 10% of them became mines within 15 years. And we're not finding them. This is a map of uh, discoveries uh, since uh, 1900, over the last uh, century and you can see the discoveries has dropped off precipitously since about 2010 uh, for base metals uh, and uh, gold in particular and what we're particularly interested in here is uh, the base metals you can see how that is really ramped down and the issue is that discovery space is getting deeper and the deposits are getting smaller this is a chart of, of a lot of the world's major deposits since 1900 and the initial ones up to about 1960 were all very close to surface we kind of bumped into them and then from 1960 on we started to find them deeper and deeper and what you'll see is that these sizes of all deposits have become smaller over time and they've become deeper over time and so we need to go deeper into the earth and we're finding smaller deposits. BHP has recognized this and has doubled its exploration budget. Other, other companies need to do this. Other countries need to put in place schemes to, to allow countries and companies to do this. Now we know in a general sense where to look because we have a decent idea about plate tectonics and ore genesis and this shows a typical schematic of a subduction zone and some plumes hitting on the bottom of it. Craton and various different um, mineral deposits on the surface. One thing to note is that all world-class ore deposits lie above geochemical and geophysical anomalies in the deep crust and the mantle. And so where you see these bodies in the deep crust and the mantle, there you'll see deposits on the surface. So we need to map the tectonics Understand the tectonics on a regional scale and then focus on a local scale. Now this is being done to some extent in Ontario uh, and uh, Western Quebec by um, Metal Earth of Laurentian University. And they're looking at a strange conundrum. And that is that in um, Western Quebec, Eastern Ontario, you have a very mineral rich Abitibi Greenstone Belt but over on the western side in the Wabidun province you've got um, very few uh, mineral deposits so why is that? these things are about the same age and so Metal Earth will try to... uh, that's the primary question that Metal Earth is, uh, is addressing now one technique that's been adopted by the Australians to great effect is to use regional scale mapping and what I'm showing you here is a resistivity model down to deep into the crust, 20 kilometres. Um, and on top uh, is the position of Olympic Dam, the world's type example of a IOCG deposit. And you can see this finger going up right to Olympic Dam from deep in the crust. There's two other fingers going up, one up to Werder and one up to Vulcan, and these are non-economic uh, mineralized zones. And so this mapping technique has been taken on board by the Australians and they're mapping the whole of Australia using this method now. Once you you see these fingers then you can go and do intensive studies around where the finger surface is. So another problem we have is people. Mineral deposits are harder to find so we need geoscientists with skills to look deep and this is principally Masters and PhD level geophysicists with a strong geology geochemistry background geophysics I think is a very attractive uh, field there's quite low unemployment rate and there's quite uh, decent income very nice to see that the male female income is is, uh, on average the same one problem is the age profile as you can see in this chart from the age of the members of the Society of Exploration Geophysicists in 2019 half the members are over 55 years old So, we're not attracting a lot of young people into the game. Earth sciences, generally, is not attracting people into it. Concerns have been expressed by many Western countries about this. And mining is associated with low and dirty technologies, whereas the reality is that modern mining methods, mining exploration methods, are just as advanced as those used in space exploration and in medical sciences. Um, The American Geosciences Institute recently compiled a statistic to show that by 2030 there will be a a gap, a skills gap of 130,000 geoscientists. So here's the geoscientists that uh, exist uh, today and will exist in eight years time. Another 25,000 expected to enter the workforce, 130,000 talent deficit. Now jobs in Canada's clean energy sector are growing hugely. It's expected over the next 10 years that there'll be over 200,000 jobs in clean energy sector whereas we'll lose about 125,000 jobs in the fossil fuels, in oil and gas. And and so what does this mean? It means we need, there's lots of jobs. Where are these people with these skills coming from? (laughs) These people have been in oil and gas don't have the right set of skills to move into renewable technology um, mining fields <clears throat> when we look at oil and gas it's a it's a, a huge business uh, 1.7 billion um, 1.7 trillion sorry whereas uh, if you add all the minerals together you come to uh, about half of that or one third of the size sorry all the others geothermal and such are small today but they will grow half of the geoscientists are in oil gas only 10 percent is in mining and that's got us almost flip we have to have far more people in the mining game if we're going to meet these net zero goals Uh, geophysics is growing the current market for geophysics is around 14 billion uh, from 2018 statistics that will grow To about 21 billion using modern tech, uh, these uh, existing technologies. That's not counting for all the geophysicists we need to meet new demands. We're going to have to grow by about 200% to meet these. And most of this growth has been estimated by this particular company to occur in the Americas. So China is addressing this with uh, their program called Sinoprobe. Sinoprobe is a very well funded program works out at about ten dollars per Chinese person Um, its 12 billion Canadian dollars and it's a program for mapping China and also for training uh, young people in in skills needed for the future and the earth sciences in China, China has been raised to the same level of national importance as space sciences and health sciences. The other thing that China's doing is assuring itself of supply for the future by going outside its borders. In 2005, China controlled seven mines outside its borders. By 2018, that was had risen to 60 mines and uh, today it's about double that. Uh, China is dominating now steel production which is absolutely wonderful Um, but what we have to really make sure that happens is that steel is produced by renewable energy sources for all vehicles and Volvo's committed to this by 2025. Now the Australian program uh, mapping program is called Uncover and this is a $225 million exploring for the future initiative Australian government initiative and it's got a number of uh, themes one is regional EM mapping called Auslamp, regional airborne EM called Ozem, and uh, seismic mapping and you can see on the right here the locations of the uh, Auslamp uh, magnetotelluric auric stations. The contradiction though is that Australia currently is going through a huge downsizing in its science departments particularly geophysics. Geophysics is hugely suffering that uh, in the near future there'll only be three institutions teaching geophysics at the undergraduate level um, with very very few subjects and uh, the trend is negative rather than positive. In Canada we're doing a lot of talking but not a lot of action as Northern Minor recognize we have the right ingredients to be Uh, an EV battery leader. We've got the same geology that other countries uh, like uh, Australia and China are exploiting. We've got a once in a generation opportunity to establish ourselves as a major player in the global battery sector, but we've got to act fast. When you look at the major mining companies uh, by capitalization worldwide, there's only one company uh, in Canada in the top 25, and that's the Potash Company. And what's happened over the last years is that Canadian companies have been bought out by the international majors. Falcon Bridge became Extrato, was bought out by Glencore, and Inco was bought out by Valet. So we have no national focus or effort. We have no national Canadian mining company for net zero metals. When we look at all of the metals and who's producing them, a lead producer on the left column here, second leading producer on the right column, Canada is in this table at one place and that's niobium. Brazil produces 90% and we produce about 5%. We should be in this table for a lot of these metals. And if we don't do something and we'll do it soon, we're going to have to import metals like what well, we are doing already. And we're going to be at the mercy of other countries for access and for pricing. So if you look at the USGS's map of major deposits in the world, this is the map of North America, and what will strike you is that the Canadian Shield is pretty empty. And that's because we know so little about uh, the Canadian Shield and about Canada. The chair of Tesla, Robin Denham, recently is in made a, an investment of a billion dollars in Australian EV minerals and, and Robin said Australia is the only country in the world with resources in all three of the critical battery metals. This is nonsense Canada's rich in lithium, graphite, nickel, cobalt aluminium, manganese, all key ingredients for advancing battery technology Tesla's going to Australia because the geology is better known and the country is mining friendly. What do we need? We need a national plan for minerals extraction in Canada. We need a national commitment that no minerals will come into Canada except those certified by the responsible minerals initiative. We need a national coordinated strategy to map the whole of Canada at a regional scale using deep crustal and mantle imaging, geophysical and geochemical methods. We need to emulate, cyanoprobe and uncover. There's little sense in sending out small geological mapping groups uh, to map small regions. We need to know the whole of Canada first. We need a national strategy for training uh, modern holistic geoscientists who are comfortable with geology, physics and chemistry. Universities are where geoscientists are trained, but earth science programmes are under threat everywhere due to low enrollments. And also universities are reaching an island unto themselves and are making their own individual decisions. We don't need a lot of geoscientists, but we do need enough. And we're not going to have enough unless we do something about it. And we need coordination at the national level of a number of geoscience societies and I'm listing here a number of the geophysics ones and the fact that there's so many I think is an issue. So in conclusion there's no path to net zero without a lot more mining. In particular Canada's net zero advisory board should appoint a mining specialist. Huge numbers of new economic deposits must be found and be found very quickly if we're to achieve net zero and how to continue technological advances without a severe throttling of progress. All the easy-to-find deposits have been found and are being exploited. Deposits must now be found in hard places, hard because of geography, politics and or because of depth. The drive to net zero cannot come at the cost of environmental degradation or human rights abuses. And Canada can contribute significantly through clean mining resulting in ethical supply. But we know far too little about Canada's mineral wealth. This should become a national strategic issue. And by failing to prepare, we're preparing to fail. I'd like to conclude by acknowledging my supervisor from quite some years ago who started me on this journey. Everyone who's been with me on my journey over the last 50 years. Simon Jarrett of uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, who provided his geotagraph your hug presentation to me and kegs for this invitation to present my thoughts to you thank you